Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, a podcast about Best Picture nominees. We have reached the end of the 1963 series with the Best Picture winner from 1963, Tom Jones! Exclamation <laughs> point. Yeah, don't forget it. So all throughout the episode, you have to say it. Tom Jones! Um, is that the official title? Exclamation point? I think so. Yes, that is the title. There's a different movie Again, that's just called poster. Tom Jones. It's a different one. Well, uh, the Wikipedia page does not list the exclamation point, nor nor does the letterbox page. So I'm curious what the official read is. Nor does the Rotten Tomatoes page. Mm. It's probably not that big of a deal. I mean, having an exclamation point is prominently displayed in the title. It's not unusual, right? Oh. I mean, I <laughs> feel like one. <laughs> based on the enthusiasm of the movie that Wilson had for Wilson, that one should have been called Wilson with an exclamation point. <laughs> they but missed an opportunity. They did. They did. No, it should have been called Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> dot, 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 sad emoji. Um, but Tom Jones, so this is not a biopic of the singer from Wales. But while we're on the topic, as I was cooking last night, I was like, you know, I'm watching Tom Jones later. Why don't I just pop on the YouTube and listen to some Tom Jones music? Lots of Ed Sullivan clips. Um, do you guys have a famo- favorite Tom Jones song? Well, we're all kids of the 90s, right? So it's not unusual. St- jumps out rather prominently thanks to Carlton on Red Prince of Bel-Air, right? I okay. Mean, Is that yours? Uh, I think my, no, my cultural... Uh, point of reference for Tom Jones is the John Mulaney Salt and Pepper Diner bit where he played What's New Pussycat 11 times on the Diner Jukebox. So, probably that, I guess. But I don't really have much affection for the song, but I have more affection for that bit by John Mulaney. So. Also, we just recorded, uh, listeners can listen to our, our recording or episode on um, From Russia with Love. And we did reference, I think, Tom Jones in that episode because he recorded the, uh, the theme song for Thunderball. For Thunderball, that's right. Hmm. My first exposure to Tom Jones was uh, as himself in Mars Attacks. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I have to say, I think Delilah is my favorite Tom Jones song. Um, you listen to it, and you're like, oh, this sounds so nice. And then you're like, oh, he actually stabs her to death. And it's, yes, it's one right. of those. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, but on to the film, Tom Jones, directed by Tony Richardson, starring Albert Feeney. Uh, did you guys have more... Uh, familiarity with the film tom jones than you did with the singer josh no i just knew that it won best picture and well this is one of those things like back in like you know we were 17 18 i would start to get into the oscars so i just looked at a list of best picture winners from the past and i saw tom jones this in 1963 and i thought hmm wonder what that's about and then that was before i'd heard of the singer tom jones and then once i'd heard of the singer tom jones i started thinking is that any relation to the 1963 movie and no it's not um but no, I didn't know anything about Tom Jones, the movie, until ooh, probably like a couple weeks ago, honestly, when I like, because we were <laughs> looking ahead to watch it. I'm like, I should probably know what this is about before I fire up the old HBO Max. So I, I, I knew nothing about it beforehand. And you were thrilled to see that it was a mercifully short two hours and one minute compared to some of the running times we've <laughs> I mean, had. Like, yeah, relative to the other 63 movies. Yeah, I was yeah. actually, I, you're doing a joke, but yes, I was relieved. Uh, Ken, had you heard of tom jones before i had heard of tom jones and <laughs> i had never seen the film uh i knew it won best picture i knew it starred albert finney and uh i knew it was a period piece 
uh, film. I I just um, I didn't know that much more about it until you picked this year. Um, and then the only new thing I picked up about the film before I watched it was that it was a comedy. Okay. Um, that's the only thing I didn't previously know. And then now that we've actually watched it, I, I must say uh, it is nothing like I was anticipating or expecting. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's something. Here's what it is. It's a, it's a period piece based on the novel by Henry Fielding that's called Tom Jones. What's the novel called? A History of Tom Jones, a Foundling. It's a period piece set. Is there any exclamation points in the title? Uh, I don't no. believe so. There's a comma. There's- a History yeah. of Tom Jones, comma, a Foundling. Um, and uh, it's a period piece set in 18th century Somerset, Gloucestershire, and London. And it's really hard to, I think, give a summary of this movie without getting really, really detailed because it's kind of a picaresque or a buildings roman. It's very episodic. It's kind of a coming of age tale about the eponymous Tom Jones, who is found uh, discovered in the bed in a bed by Squire Allworthy. And he thinks that yes, he thinks that one of his maids and his barber conceived the bebe illegitimately out of lust so he banishes them just names the kid tom jones on the fly there and chooses to raise him as his own son uh after that we pretty much get a series of tom jones just being a rascal going around sleeping being a little stinker <laughs> being a little stink- he's a little stinker he's which yeah. that's what the movie's about we have to talk about how this is kind of barry Lyndon, but we'll get to yes. that a little bit later we're gonna talk a lot about barry um, Lyndon, i think like yeah yeah and um he sleeps with a lot of women um gets accused of fathering another bastard child he meets what might who might be his father later is jailed and is Sentenced to be hanged for murder after getting some duels. After being in some duels, um, he was he's discovered to have not murdered Mister Fitzpatrick in the duel. And spoiler alert: he is saved just in time to marry Sophie with everyone's blessing at the end of the film. And yes, and you can't don't 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 shy away from the fact that it's revealed he is while still a bastard. He is not the child of he's the He's highborn, not yes, a baseborn. Exactly. Yes. He is he's a highborn bastard. The he's child a fancy of the, bastard. He's the he's the squire's sister's son, so he's in fact an heir to the estate. Yes. That he was raised on which he was raised, yeah. So there's some real Jon Snow in the last season of Game of Thrones yeah. vibe in the last <laughs> ten minutes of this movie. Yeah. So an interesting thing about the film Tom Jones is it's nominated for ten Academy Awards, it wins four. Picture, director, screenplay, and Original music, or sorry, best score, substantially original. It's called um, which, okay, um, and loses art direction and five other categories. What five other categories did it lose? Uh, uh, I know that it lost three best supporting actress nominations. That's right, and best actor and best supporting actor. So Tom Jones is tied with the record for film with most acting nominations at five. There are eight other films to have achieved five acting nominations. How many of them can you name? Oh. Uh, is, let's, is American I, Hustle one? It is not. Oh. No, that had four. That had four, yeah. I purposely didn't prepare you for this. <laughs> um. Well, I'm trying to think of the movies that I know that like he just said, American Hustle and Silver Lines Playbook both had four. Mm-hmm. 
What had five? Can you give me some decades? I can give you some decades. Um, yeah. How, how many movies are we talking about, by the way? How many, well, how many options are there? There are eight. Okay, you guys are Ooh. never probably okay. going to get Peyton Place from 1957. So let's just throw that out there. No, that was actually my first guess. Thanks a lot for... <laughs> Damn it, you took the one I knew. Um, let's, let's get some uh, Hollywood renaissance here. We got one from 1967, one from 1974, one from 1976. Oh, do we... Is Murder on the Orient Express a five Oscar nominee? Wrong. Uh, Godfather Part Two. There you go. Yep. There, okay. That's okay. the seventy-four. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, Sixty-seven. Yeah. Could have been. Um, could have been. Guess who's coming to dinner? Nope. Yeah, it could have been. Nope. Okay. Uh, it's not Bonnie and Clyde. Yes, it is. Yeah. Is it? Oh, it is. It, it is, is Bonnie, Bonnie okay. and Clyde. Uh huh. Um, the four leads, and then who's the, who, who's the fifth one? Um, well, it's it's the whole Barrow oh. Gang. It's the yeah, the whole, whole barrel game. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. that's, yeah, right. that's right. That's right. Okay. Uh, a film previously covered on Josh's other film podcast from 1976. Network. Yes, you are messing Network. with the primal forces yes. of nature. Um, then the well rest. Deserved. Yeah, well, Ned Beatty got support down. At the, yeah, I got that's right. That's well deserved correct. nominations well, for two, that. Movie. Two performers, two performers in Network got nominated for like five minutes of screen time. Yeah, Beatrice know? Straight. So that's, won. How, that's how that happened. Yeah. yeah. The other four films are from 1942 and then 1950, 1953, 1954. All That Eve? You're correct, sir. That's the 50. Yeah. Yep. Uh, um, a Martin Brando vehicle? I don't know who Martin Brando is. Uh, Sorry, Marlon yeah. Brando. <laughs> <laughs> Marlon Brando. Oh, his cousin Martin? Yes. Yeah. Your cousin, Martin Brando? <laughs> He's a very <laughs> underrated actor. Um, On the Waterfront didn't have five. Yes, it did. Did it? Uh-huh. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. And then the last two, you've got a William Holden um picture and a war movie with a woman's name That's in the title no um miracle at santa anna no directed by spike lee i'm, I'm afraid yeah, not it is not a, a spike lee joint that is a war movie with a woman's name in the title That's correct so i was looking for mrs miniver uh, i was just i was just thinking of mrs miniver and then it the just... other was from here to eternity oh um, okay tom jones and peyton place are the only ones out of that group to go oh for five so there you go. Um, all right. So let's move. Let's move into the Tom Jones conversation here. I want to start with Albert Feeney because Albert Feeney is the eponymous Tom Jones, and this was why are you his... calling him Feeney? Like he's the neighbor in Boy Meets World. Isn't that his name? Albert That's Feeney. Principal, right? Isn't Albert Finney? It's Albert Isn't Finney. Finney. Well, Mr. I... Feeney is the principal from Boy Meets World, right? I was introduced to him yes. as Albert Feeney, <laughs> and. Um... <laughs> By whom? By Catherine Zeta-Jones when she introduced him as her father in Ocean's 12. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Other people might I forgot, know. I forgot your dad. Albert very, he looks Finney. At the very uh, end of the movie. Yeah. From, yeah. from his last film, Skyfall, uh, he was nominated for five Oscars in his time. And um, I, I saw him first in Big Fish, actually, which I thought he was Me terrific too. in. Yeah. That's one of his yeah better performances. Yes. The he's, strongest. He's 26 in Tom Jones. Um, hmm. Just kind of wild to think about. Um, Josh, did you like his performance? Uh, I very much liked his performance in this. Yeah. Uh, like you said, I first encountered him in Big Fish. Mm. And then I later encountered him in Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Oh, great that's Lume right. Movie. Underrated Sidney Lumet movie. Um, he's great in Miller's Crossing. Yep. And... <laughs> uh, I haven't seen Aaron Brockovich, but I know he's got a big role in Aaron Brockovich. He's kind of resurged his career. Yeah, yeah, kind of resurged him for the last you know decade, couple decades of his career. Um, he's in the Bourne Ultimatum. 
um he plays the he's like in charge of the or the the program that created Jason Bourne um in that franchise. Right. He brings a certain gravitas to that movie because he pops up and he's he's got this kind of just aura about him when we see him for the first time. He's also yeah. um he he delivers one of the better Winston Churchill performances um or versions I guess of Churchill in um The Gathering Storm. It was an HBO made for TV movie back about 20 years ago or so. He's he very good. Won an Emmy for that. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's very you know good what? in that. In the in the Churchill War Rooms in London, which I've referenced before on this podcast, they have a little section of like portrayals of Winston Churchill in media, and I believe he is uh, listed there, oh. though I have not seen that uh, portrayal. He, uh, I bring all that up. I bring up his the stuff that I recognize him from to make the point that I have seen him as an older man, mm-hmm. and so when I think of Albert Finney, I think of an older man. You know, the dying father in Big Fish. Uh, the dying father also in before the devil knows you're dead and the long lost estranged father in oceans 12 um and the dying father um, figure in skyfall (laughs) oh yeah although if i can if i can (laughs) tack on to that you think about him as an older man i quite like the sydney lumet 1974 um murder on the orient express which i referenced Mm. a, a few minutes ago as a guess um it's not my absolute favorite uh, performance of Hercule Poirot, but because well, it doesn't have Imagine Dragons in it, Ken. I mean, what <laughs> if you go back and watch that movie to to think about the fact that he's only in his late thirties and yet he appears to be at fifty in that movie? I think Albert Finney, starting in like the late sixties, pretty much always appears much older than he actually is. So I think he's always in my mind an older actor, even when he's not. I think he's a funny little scamp in this and always get into mischief. And I really like his fourth wall breaks. Oh, uh-huh. maybe. I don't know. I don't know how we feel about that, but I think like in particular, like it wouldn't always work in for every, every actor, but I think the way that he plays it and like that little glint in his, he's got big blue eyes yeah, and that little like wink, winky, uh, cheeky. He's also got big rosy cheeks mm-hmm. too. He's just got a great face and uh very, jubilant and i think he's good in this i I like him a lot he has a devilish little smirk that he employs several times oh yeah Uh oh yeah yeah uh ken do you have comments on albert finney's performance that you any aspects you liked any ways you found it perhaps wanting it was it was possibly my favorite part of the film to be honest um that's not to say anything bad about the film there are other aspects i quite liked but i think albert finney in the lead role here really carried me through the whole picture um in large part due to some of the kind of comedic uh choices he's making throughout the picture i think if this is supposed to be a, a satire in any way or at the very least a period comedy i think I think Albert Finney's doing an awful lot to kind of elevate the film as much as possible in that area, as opposed to letting it get too bogged down in any any semblance of of drama or history. Um, yeah. He's kind of keeping us honest with what the film's supposed to be. So, going off what you guys said, that makes me want to go in a slightly different direction. Do the outline out of order here. Um, I liked him. I read a quote of his that really summarized maybe a small issue I have with the performance, which is he actually did not care too much for this role. He took it because it was a big role and it was early in his career, but he didn't like it that much because he said uh, Tom Jones as a character doesn't really get to uh, do much in terms of moving the plot along. He is very much a reactionary character. And a lot of the way the movie works is the things that he sort of fails to do rather than the thing, the ways in which he takes fate into his own hands. Um, And I think for me that, 
that made the movie drag in some places or made me kind of drift in interest in places with it. But I, I think there are like long stretches where he's not in it. That's and it's other people kind of machinating around him. You know? Yeah, for sure. It also I think that kind of drags. In in fairness, the film is also mocking the the aristocracy or the classes at the time, and so the fact that Tom Jones, who is our our he's our protagonist, he's our hero of the story, he's also incredibly hypocritical throughout the movie, just like many of the other characters, whether they're well intended or ill-intended depending on which character it is uh they all share in some of the same faults and the fact that things just kind of happen to them and in the case of our protagonist he gets a happy ending i think there's some probably criticism coming from henry fielding Mm -hmm. uh in the novel at least um adapted here by i think john osborne i think is the screenwriter yeah um which i've never read the book um, TJ, I don't know if you did. I don't. Oh no, Ken. <laughs> so here's the thing about the Long. book: it's it's supposedly a, like a masterpiece of English literature and one of the first like novels that we have. And I say that because before then, a lot of people writing. If you look at you know Milton, Chaucer, Shakespeare, etc., they're writing in dramatic poetry form. And this was one of the first that's popping up as a serial, but later can be put together as a novel. And um, it is. Between eight and nine hundred pages long, um, it's gargantuan and, <laughs> and a bit dry. That's and that's my understanding. Uh, so you know, I just wasn't really going to get to it this week. I do hope to read it at some point because, like I said, it's it's supposed to be a giant of world literature. But um, I did read about it, and when I read about it, that helped me understand some of the choices that Tony Richardson's making, which is really where I'd like to go next. The directorial choices in this, I think, are unique, distinct, and somewhat aggressive. Um, and I wanted to throw that out to you guys. What were some of the choices that stood out either in ways you appreciated or in ways that might've frustrated you? Josh, you already mentioned the fourth wall breaks. Well, yeah, I think, um, while I was watching this, I was thinking about like breathless and the French new wave that came out three or four years before this, because it has, first of all, it opens as like a silent movie or like kind of a spoof of a silent movie, basically mm -hmm. where there's, which I loved by the way. I thought that was good, yeah. Uh, where there's like you know uh, dialogue in, in title cards and like music and just reactions, and then there are also like uh, sped up sequences, like some of the um, <laughs> one of the letter letterbox reviews references Benny Hill. I, yes, I didn't, Josh. I think that was I think because you watched it on one and a half speed, it was sped up, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, untrue. But there's also like freeze frames uh, in other places, and um, not only does like tom jones himself break the fourth wall at least like four or five or even six times but also like the narrator kind of uh there's a narrator that says you know a sex scene's about to start and the narrator's like you know we will not show you these things that are kind of retelling tonight but and then they just cut away and like they, they make that joke multiple times like because mm -hmm. there are multiple scenes like that and the narrator like comments on it every time yeah. um i'm trying to think what else but like yeah yeah the freeze frames uh speeding up the action scene the chase scenes um Oh, also like the uh, dissolves, like the scene transitions mm -hmm. were like mm -hmm. very over the top, not just dissolves, but like, you know, um, I can't even think yeah, of how, it's, how, to do, it's how to do them. kind of a wipe that seems to proceed like clockwise around. Well, they do that one, but they also do like more elaborate wipes besides just the clockwise one mm -hmm. I thought, but maybe I was, maybe I was, I don't know. Um, yeah. So it's pretty over the top, pretty in your face. And I was thinking a lot about uh, the French New Wave and how it was kind of playing with the form. And this is kind of maybe like kind of 
picking up the ball and running with it from that point, possibly. Okay. I don't know, though. Yeah, Ken, what'd you make of those choices? Um, uh, there were some choices that I quite liked. Like, I, I made reference to the the opening sequence of the film where we get the flashback of, of the squire uh, finding the baby in his bed and then calling the whole household to his bedroom and basically um, identifying who's responsible and issuing the, pe- the the punishments for the maid and the barber. None of there's no spoken dialogue in that scene. It's all just got a very, um, very comedic silent era score uh, from John Addison playing over the whole scene. As uh, Josh mentions, the, the title card uh, title cards or, or dialogue cards pop up relaying what they're saying although if you're paying attention it's pretty clear what they're saying as they say it um i quite liked that whole opening sequence i thought it put me well into the mood and the atmosphere of the movie and i think set um set a pretty good pace for where i expected the movie to go at the same time choices made later um in particular the choice during the um deer hunt sequence to kind of allow the camera either to be handheld or just kind of rest on maybe either a helicopter or another horse or on a vehicle or whatever, but it's bouncing around all over the place. There's close-up shots. You can't really tell what the hell's going on. It's incredibly chaotic, and I'm not really sure what the purpose of that scene was um, from Richardson's perspective. It almost seems like there are parts of this film where he's, to Josh's point, testing these different ideas and different um, film choices that maybe he saw in French New Wave films because Richardson was trying to... the rules to, of the game. Right, yeah. He was trying to apply some of yeah. this to um, to British cinema. Richardson is known for having done that in the 60s, trying to expand uh, British cinema beyond what it had been up to this point. Um, that said, this film at times feels like that, his experiment almost, more than it is a terrific whole product. Um and again, I, I get I get his choice or testing the waters with that, but scenes like that just kind of took me out of it because it was dizzying. To be honest, that whole that whole hunt sequence was dizzying as fuck. I- <laughs> <laughs> Ken, I got to disagree with you a little bit here. You rat bastard! No I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> because uh, I I also liked I liked the opening that you mentioned the the silent sequence because I was not at all prepared for that and yep. so I thought I, I was yeah. I was coming into this especially knowing the novel and the doorstop that it is just being aware of it and I don't I've mentioned this before I don't like these stuffy costume drama e things and do and so I'm like oh god here we go and right off the bat it's going oh you're not going to do that this is irreverent this is playful this is zany um you know we'll talk about barry linden in a bit but yeah josh and then there's like a the, that sequence ends with like a 45 second just hold on an infant's face yeah. while the titles <laughs> title cards just go over it yeah the opening credits play over baby's face i like that it's good the other the other film i was thinking about throughout this was the favorite which I think I brought up yep. in conversation with Barry Lyndon earlier, and the way in which that movie is also highly aestheticized to the point of being kind of uh, irreverent towards its subject matter and the subject matter kind of indulging in its lasciviousness. And so I really appreciated that. And even I, I don't love fourth wall breaks in general. I kind of roll my eyes at those. But for me, they these things were spaced out enough throughout the film to keep it from slipping too much into... They picked their spots well, I thought. Yeah. yeah. And and I was a fan of that for sure. Um, the the okay the deer hunt sequence that you bring up, I really liked that sequence. Um, I did too. And 
I, I agree with you that it's it's dizzying, it's chaotic, it's somewhat nauseating. But for me, that's where I picked up on, oh, this movie is really taking a piss at um, civility, the city, aristocracy, and that, that thin veil of, um, I guess civility is the word I'm looking for, right above savagery. And everyone's acting like they have all of these manners, and then they go out and hunt in this really like excessive and primal way, which is then represented in um you know chaotic staging and chaotic um cinematography, and even to the point you said where it's clearly mounted on vehicles, which I agree with you, I think that's the um intervention or the interruption of modernity into the movie because this movie, while it's set in the what eight early eighteen hundreds or something this mid, is yeah, mid. 18th century yeah this is the mid 18th century as clearly and obviously seen through the 1960s right which i'll bring i'll bring up later i think it it actually kind of dates the movie in a sense but i did appreciate that this is very much a 1960s movie the thing about that scene though i think i i totally agree with what the purpose of the the whole hunt sequence is in the film the fact that we're supposed to be it's supposed to undermine the the reputation of the aristocracy and the well-to-do at the time period. I think there are certain moments in that scene sequence that work really well for that though. For example, they trample through a poor farmer's property, killing one of his goose and the poor guy's just holding the dead goose's neck um, as they're just, just go on with their day. They go on with their hunt and he's just left there with these dead animals. And then once they actually catch the deer, there's a moment where Sophie's father, Squire Western He's cackling with glee, holding up the dead deer wow. as blood is trickling from its neck. Yeah, and it's rather disgusting and yeah. horrifying. But this is and this is this is one of the lords of the land. Yeah. in that area, I thought those scenes in particular really highlighted that very well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the amount of of okay. kind of handheld camera. It just went on for so long that I wish he had reeled it back a bit. It's a bit, uh, it's a bit indulgent, but I think that might be. I, for me, it just kind of enhances the effect of it. But to your point, yeah. I love that. Yeah, he's holding the deer head up and it's bleeding. But then we have two scenes in there where we're like, "Oh, we can't show you the sex." Right. Yeah. So there's there's <laughs> yeah. a criticism of the establishment of religion and the 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 uh, mores of it that are so kind of pious and moralizing, where we can indulge in this excessive violence, but we're not going to show you any sex. And I thought that was kind of funny, Josh. Uh, in end of the chaos of that sequence, like there's a lot of quick cuts. I think, mm-hmm. and like one of the quick cuts that st- struck out to me is the uh the I guess the boot spurs inside the horses. Oh my gosh! Like they showed multiple shots of like the horses bleeding on like different horses d- being ridden by different men. Just like very very quick half second shots of like them bleeding from being like uh whatever the term is like kicked with the boots. And I'm like, I think that kind of like enhances the point of the savagery and uh can you mention like the collateral damage of the the geese and like how these guys just don't don't give a shit they're just like catching this deer just for sport really like they don't need you know they're releasing the deer and then chasing after it to catch it like you know and um what pain is inflicted just to like in in the course of these guys amusement yeah you know yeah um I thought that was potent, and that Poignant. that their that their taste for kind of what's actually beautiful and good is so off because the way these people eat is disgusting. Oh yeah, oh my, the, the dinner <laughs> sequence with the 
square western yeah. man yeah. ripping through meat like an and animal. Then, well and then the same guy and then he eats the meal and he's like burping and then i i can't do this because people can't see. but yeah. yeah he's got his he's like man spreading his leg up and he tells her go play the piano and she's basically like eh, and he's like oh you play so beautifully <laughs> um and then uh the the dinner sequence later oh, yeah. where uh Tom Jones sits across from Mrs. Waters. Mrs. Waters, who's also the maid, as we find out. It's yes. also well, who's also Jenny Jones. Yeah, yes. it's also Jenny Jones. Um, what an what an incredible sequence that like, <laughs> um, it, we're gonna talk about like the influences I think that this movie had. Uh, Austin Powers is one of them. Yes, I, Austin I, Powers is a mate owes an awful lot to Tom. I Jones. immediately thought of that chess scene with Ivana Hump a lot. Yes, yes. <laughs> with Ivana uh-huh. Hump. Yeah, um. that's. They, they. I mean, it's not, it's not like they ripped that only from Tom Jones. It's not like a novel concept, but like that the dinner sequence w- between Tom Jones and Mrs. Waters is uh, extremely I bought a hump a lot in the chess sequence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think to to kind of try to wrap this part of the conversation to put a point on what both of you have said. This movie being in the early '60s, I think you're right, Josh, and I hadn't thought of it to bring this up. Um, it's clearly influenced by f- French New Wave aesthetics. Um, the other thing it's doing is Tony Richardson's earlier films were a part of what was called kitchen sink realism, like British kitchen sink realism. Um, so I haven't seen these movies, but The Entertainer, A Taste of Honey, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, um, which were much more about representing realism in the li- in like the life of kind of the British working class. If you think of a film the three of us watched before the podcast was the Mike Lee movie. Um, what was that called? <laughs> Meantime. There we go. Yeah. Uh, he, was, yeah. he was kind of doing that. And now this is a sharp right turn. And it reminded me of something, which is actually a film from the next year, A Hard Day's Night by Richard Lester with the Beatles. Sure. Have you Have you seen that? I have. Yep. I'm sorry. Starting the who? Um, a fellow by the name of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, and George huh. Harrison. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, they were kind of lost to the '60s, but um, and it it very much it's kind of this day in the life mock documentary with the sped up Benny Hill business with lots of breaks to the camera. Um, again, that kind of irreverent aesthetic that we see a lot in this film. So. It's something about it I think was was kind of fresh at the time, which then takes me to people loved this movie. It was not terribly well reviewed, but as the poster said, everyone loves Tom Jones. People loved this movie. And that's, I think, a big reason why it got, like I said, five acting nominations. And if you compare this, like I did, to the Golden Globes of the, the era, the 21st Golden Globes, which usually we see this as a precursor for the Oscars. Just one n- nomination for supporting actress, not three. Hmm. Uh, it was for Joan Greenwood. And then you get uh, Albert Finney gets in there. Not, doesn't even win. If you go to the BAFTAs, which tend to like British movies more, um, Tom, Tom sure. Jones wins Best Film and Best British Film. Uh, Albert, Albert Finney and Hugh Griffith get nominated for British Actor. But again, just Edith Evans as... Best British Actress, whereas if you see the Oscars, you've got Albert Finney, Susanna York, um, who else was nominated in there? Hugh Griffith, Edith Evans, and then uh, Diane Salento were all nominated. I was surprised to see my my favorite performance in the film was Carrie Elways, and he didn't get nominated at any of these. (laughs) 
So hold on real quick, just to go. Hugh Griffith plays uh, the he's Square Western. Yeah, he's Sophie's Square dad. Western. Yeah. yeah, so so Sophie's dad. Yeah, uh, the guy who has the crazy eyebrows that, uh, as TJ just mentioned, ate a really disgusting meal, then put his leg up and had to play the piano. So that's that guy got a supporting actor nomination. Um, uh, is it Molly? Like the first woman yes. that Tom sleeps with? Like we we open on Tom Jones, like kind of playing around with her this woman and uh she gets pregnant and they originally think it's by tom jones but it's actually by somebody else so that's uh she gets his pointing action i love how jarring uh, it is to hear diane salento's kind of east enders voice <laughs> coming out <laughs> in a film set in the mid 18th century in rural england like she sounds like she's right out of a london soap opera or something yeah. mm-hmm. and it's it's just and it's she- jarring and hysterical to listen to in the movie Edith Evans plays Miss Mrs. Western. Mm-hmm. Who I guess is is that Sophie's aunt. aunt? Yeah, it's the squire's aunt. older okay. sister. So it's the, the yeah the older lady who like tells Sophie like oh we found you are you going, going to greet your lover today and she thinks it's Tom Jones was actually the other guy um, David Warner um, and then Joyce Redman plays uh, Mrs. Waters and or Jenny, Jenny Jones. Jones. So the lady who. Who sits across from Tom during the Ivana Hompelot esque <laughs> yes. uh, dinner yeah, scene? Thank, yes. thank God! Thank God! Tom Jones turns out to be a highborn bastard and not the child of Jenny Jones. Because otherwise, like they, they sleep together, yeah, they right? do. <laughs> so he he sleeps with who people thought was his mom, but it turns out that was not his mom. Thank God. Yes. I do love, I love that the- on serious film, people are reference point for a best picture winner is the Ivana Hompelot scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and, pe- and I've on a toilet made out of solid gold, but it's not in the cost now, is it? Uh, people you mentioned kind of in passing. Honestly, probably my favorite performance in this is David Warner. I was, David Warner! David Warner, yes. Spicer Lovejoy. My guy from Titanic! Yeah. Right here. Playing, playing a very David Warner-esque yeah. role. Interestingly, though, this movie... Okay, you got Susanna York as Sophie Western, and you have David Warner as Blueful, who is the Squire's other nephew. Um, yeah. turns out he's the basically, he's, he's, uh, Tom Jones's brother. Um, Bluffle. but Bluffle. David Warner and Susanna York about 20 years after this appear as, um, Mr. And Mrs. Cratchit in the George C. Mm. Scott starring, um, yeah. uh, adaptation of a Christmas Carol. Christmas I love Carol. having, they're both in this movie and I'm like, Oh yeah, there they are. The Cratchits mm-hmm. and they don't like each other here at all. Yeah. He's what, David Warner died last year, I think, didn't he? A couple he? years yeah, ago, did. yeah, because his yeah, last movie years. was Mary Poppins, right? Oh, he played yeah, the old yeah. admiral who yeah. lived next door. 2022. Uh, Ken, you said playing a very David Warner role. If uh, you're listening to this podcast and you're not familiar with who David Warner is or what a David Warner role would be, how would you describe it? Uh, he's he's often appearing as kind of a smarmy or Weasley. Um, well well bred in appearance he's usually well put together but there's just something distrustful about him he's usually got that kind of appearance to himself with some exceptions like he's in like i said he plays cratchit in a christmas carol he does a pretty good job there and he's one of the he's one of the the protagonists or one of the the good guys if you will in the omen in 1976 he's also in that movie um, in a rather prominent role opposite gregory peck um, but otherwise he often pops up playing, if not the lead antagonist, uh, usually some kind of, like I said, intelligent henchman, mm-hmm. not, not necessarily the brawn, uh, by any means, but he's often doing a lot of the, the more thoughtful, uh, underhanded things. Yeah. 
He's definitely the henchman in Titanic. He's Cal's sure. valet mm-hmm. who tells Leo DiCaprio, I do believe this ship will sink. And yet spends the rest of his life chasing them around the ship. What a dumbass. Well, well, the thing is, is Cal put the diamond in the coat. Put the coat on her! Uh, speaking of which, Ken, how's that screenplay coming? <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. It's going to be 900 pages. No. <laughs> Fleshing out all the characters. Um, uh, what I liked about David Warner as Bliffle in this one is I thought he was very funny. And I this movie has a comedic tone to it that doesn't always work for me. I, it was more kind of, you know, elbow in the ribs kind of funny than like laugh out loud funny to me. But the scene where he, she's like, oh, Tom Jones brought me a thrush. And she's got the bird in there. And he reaches in and just throws it out and goes, oh, whoops, it got away. I didn't know it was going to fly away. I, I thought he was very funny. He's got a great kind of straight man RBF going that, I yeah. think is, is pretty pretty funny. Um, we ran through all those performers, and uh, oh, Peter Bull shows up as Thwackum, which you might know as the Russian ambassador from Doctor Strangelove. He, um, he yes, he's also yeah. in um, yeah, yeah yeah. We haven't we haven't gotten there yet, but he's also in the African Queen with Humphrey Bogart oh. and Catherine Hepburn. And Jack McGowan, who is that. Partridge, the maybe dad, is his last film's The Exorcist. So, um, out of all of those, since we already talked about Albert Finney. Um, did you guys have a favorite supporting character slash supporting role? I didn't realize it was David Warner when I was watching it. It, it. it wasn't until I was on the Wikipedia page later. But like once I learned that was David Warner, I'm like, hell yeah. Mm-hmm. David Warner, mm-hmm. my guy. For for straight humor, um, I I really liked Hugh Griffiths and Edith, Edith Evans, particularly playing off of one another. Mm-hmm. Um, they are playing caricatures of British aristocracy. And Hugh Griffith yeah. is so over the He's top really funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. as Squire Western. And um, Edith Evans, Dame, excuse me, Edith Evans, is really bringing the kind of uppity, uh, uppity old lady who's just seemingly offended by almost everything about her brother and the rural uh, we'll say I'm aristocrats in 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 air quotes here, because um, she's spent most of her life clearly in London, and yeah. um, her distaste for everybody else in this film is hysterical. I, I need to return to the question I started before we digressed here. Why do you think people love this movie so much in 1963? So, okay, number one, you said that it didn't get, it wasn't super well reviewed. It actually was. Decent reviewed. I it think. was it was uh, decently reviewed. I don't think it was like overwhelmingly well reviewed, was it? So I, I mean, we'll get to that, I guess, in the recap episode. But I will say it's, it was b- the best reviewed of the five best picture nominees. I think. Okay. Um, but again, we can get, we can get to that in the recap episode. Um, I went to Rotten Tomatoes, Rotten Tomatoes, which I know has mostly contemporary reviews of movies from the sixties, but like just uh, pulling a little bit from there, uh, James Berardinelli, who's Pretty big on Rotten Tomatoes said Tom Jones' sense of playfulness and experimentation that one rarely finds in an upscale motion picture, which I think is true. Like I think it's like it plays with the form quite a bit. Like for a stuffy period drama, number one, it's pretty reverent, and number two, it it's not it's kind of odd from a formless perspective. Like it's it's kind of out there. You know, normally movies like this are like so staid and by the book, and you you know uh, meet your expectations in this kind of plays with your expectations i think and um another just like blurb from rotten tomatoes from chris woman in the la times it's a freewheeling fast-moving relic from a time when body wasn't bad and sex comedy still celebrated sex mm. so you know i think um just kind of paging through through the reviews it seems like everyone liked albert Finney's performance and the people who liked it respond positively to the tone 
and to the you know fourth wall breaks and formless stuff that we already talked about okay so that's my guess as to why people like this so much yeah i think i think subverting expectations is in large part why this film probably did so well this is a period piece film and anybody going into it as we mentioned earlier our expectations probably were um completely off center here when we went into watching this same thing for most of the audiences and word of mouth probably helped it quite a bit yeah tj you mentioned the same thing about or i was going to say the same thing that you said about how you're you were expecting to not like it because you were expecting a certain state costume drama period piece um i was thinking the same thing and actually on on friday of this past weekend uh so two days ago uh i watched the director's cut of amadeus um, which is a, a great movie and a lot better movie than this. Not saying that, but like as I was watching Amadeus, I knew that I was watching Tom Jones probably the next day. And I'm like, man, I'm really not looking forward to this. Like, cause like Amadeus, this is how you do like a, a stuffy period drama by making it not stuffy and making it fun and funny, which Amadeus certainly is. And then Tom Jones is actually like as almost as irreverent, I think. And, and at least I don't think it's as funny as Amadeus, but like it's at least, it's at least going for it. And so it was like a real pleasant surprise. Um, the tone is the tone is just a little sillier. That's really all. Oh, it's it's much yeah. sillier than Amadeus. I mean, Amadeus is like funny, but also like supremely tragic, which is right. you know why the movie is is great. Um, what I want to say though, TJ, is to offer a counter question to your question is, you know, why did people like this so much in the '60s? My question now is, why do people hate it so much now? And we can maybe transition into letterbox portion, but like going through letterbox, people really don't like. Yeah. So that was, you said that off mic right before we started. And I was surprised to hear that. Not that I can't imagine anyone not liking this movie, but I'm really surprised just that there was such a drop off from this was just the bees knees in 1963. And now that there's this movie also to me, doesn't seem like a movie that I have a hard time seeing people love, love, love it. And I have a hard time, seeing people hate 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 it it doesn't seem that divisive yeah. to me so i was very curious to hear that and i would love to hear what letterbox has to say josh i can do that i guess to answer my own question just to kind of spoil the take is that i think people are a lot harsher on best picture winners like decades after the fact like they hold it to a much higher standard and so if a movie isn't like head and shoulders better than the competition then they're like especially hard on it mm. and that's that's my guess for what's happening here, but maybe I'm just off the pulse. Um, but here, here's some letterbox reviews. Uh, <laughs> the the highest rated one, as is often the case, is like a sticky, jokey kind of thing. But it's a two and a half star review, which is like higher than a lot of the top reviews. It's a two and a half star review that basically just does new lyrics to Tom Jones's "It's Not Unusual," but instead inserts it changes the lyrics to be about the movie Tom Jones. And uh, is it, I'm not going to sing it. Is it good? Do they do a good job with it? It's okay. Oh, okay. Even you can look it up yourself, I guess. But uh, the gist is Albert Finney's good. Albert Finney's good, but it's not a very good adaptation, and the book's a lot better. And like they're going for it, but they miss. That's kind of the gist of the uh, top letterbox review in the stylings of It's Not Unusual. Um, beyond that, there's a one star review that I'll just read part of it. This isn't. This is just part of the whole review. Uh, while the movie has a high aesthetic of cheeky oddity that would define the years following Western media, it also functions as something of a facetiously tasteful hate letter to the self-serious period pieces that saturated cinema up to that point. Liberated from grandiosity, Tom Jones was free to, instead, pursue absurdity. And I find that interesting because, again, this is a one-star review, and that kind of sounds complimentary to <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and, like, 
if you if you read the rest of the review, it also is, I think, arguably complimentary. And like the the things that it actually said, like adjectives it actually used to describe the movie are horny, messy, and sloppy insanity. And again, like the review just kind of says over and over again, this isn't good, this isn't good, this is a painful watch. But like when it actually describes what the movie is, it again could easily be mistaken as complimentary to me. So that, I found that to be a very interesting letterbox review. And the thing that most people seem to have against the movie is that this one best picture. Mm. And that's like its biggest sin. And reading through the other reviews, you kind of get the same sense. Like, uh, this is part of another one and a half star review. Far and away, one of the worst best picture winners. Just read the plot synopsis and you can tell how cliched the story is. The way it's shot is messy and ugly. The direction has some pretty strange and awful choices. The editing is quite sloppy. It tries to act self-aware and quirky, but ends up confusing the viewer because of how strange yet cliched it is. The acting is fine. I just think the movie. I just think this movie takes absolutely no risks in any way and makes it all the more boring. <laughs> that and that like, doesn't no make any sense to me. It's contradictory. <laughs> yeah. That's contradictory. Like that review itself is contradictory. Yeah. It says that it, it um the direction the direction has some strange and pretty awful choices. Three sentences later, the movie takes absolutely no risks. Yeah. What are you talking yeah. about? You just said it makes strange and awful choices. Well, like I think that's risk. Listening to that whole review, I think what's interesting about that is I think they discover what is the good thing about the movie, which is that combination of kind of cliched, nose in the air subject matter with an anarchic approach to the telling of the story. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and I just want to say this last one okay uh, one more uh, two star review uh, again this is just part of the review the writing features the plot of an Adam Sandler film with none of the wit the direction of the film is smug and hateful despite its lighthearted face a farce without grace if you will the social commentary is shallow and mis- misplaced now I'm not sure I agree with that commentary but it, it at least is commentary you know and like it that at least see, you know that that at least makes sense to me I could see how someone would have that take the other ones like don't really make a whole lot of sense to me. And uh, lastly, I just wanted to highlight this one, which is a one-star review. Um, it just made me laugh. Uh, Yakety sacks, but make it a period piece. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I thought that was funny. That made me I'm laugh. I'm struck by how much I think this film, as far as the reaction coming from an audience, it's either going to click with you or it's not. Um, I speak from somewhat, some experience, I guess, my wife decided to watch this with me despite her reservations after Barry Lyndon. She was not sure what she was getting into. And while this is not quite like Barry Lyndon, it's far sillier. The, the, um, the Benny Hill of it all, particularly during the sequence when they're at the little inn and they're literally in, in fast, it kind of sped up motion. Um, it's that the fact that it's that silly. And I think constantly uttering, undercutting what you would expect from the film if you're not buying into that, if it's not, if it's not pleasing you or entertaining you in any way, there's no way to really relate to the characters. There's no time to relate to the characters. You can't really uh, invest yourself in the story, perhaps. And so it just feels like a two-hour slog through a bunch of zany, ridiculous, experimental filmmaking. Whereas if you're buying into it, like we said, the start of the film if you really liked that opening sequence, you're at least in on the film from the start and interested in where it's going. And so while I don't particularly love the film, I can kind of see it both ways. If it's not clicking for you from the start, if you just can't buy into it, it's going to be a trudge. If you're willing to kind of set aside all of your expectations, everything you know about this type of film at the time, 
uh, I think there's something you're going to get out of it that you at least appreciate, even if you don't love it. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I find it interesting that, so the, the negativity about the movie to repeat myself seems to be this one best picture and like, why? And that's, kind of pe- what people are holding against it and what's interesting if if you go to the comment section on the like one one and a half star letterbox reviews there's a lot of people saying oh i haven't checked this out yet so i'm glad i avoided it because it sounds like it's not very good based on your view and then there are other people being like you know what i watched this and actually wasn't bad i like it more than you seem to have liked it and like again the consensus seems to be well obviously this is one of the worst best picture winners like that's what is said throughout the letterbox reviews and i'm like i'm not i don't know like i didn't i, didn't, I thought it was okay I thought this is all right. Is it a strange Best Picture winner? Yes. Yes. Yes, it is. This is an odd. I think all the reasons we've talked about, like the entire discussion we've had so far, kind of indicates that this isn't like a typical winner. And to underline that point with a permanent marker, let me read to you just the three films that won before and the three films that won after. The Apartment, West Side Story, Lawrence of Arabia, Tom Jones. My Fair Lady, The Sound of Music, A Man for All Seasons. It's a bit of a shift. Yeah. 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 Although, I mean, it's it's strange you go from My Fair Lady, you go from this to My Fair Lady, A Sound yeah. of Music, and then A Man for All Seasons is then just a, a hard left turn yeah. from yeah. Sound of Music. That's a, it's a straight up really dry yes. British period piece drama. That's um, very philosophical versus Sound of Music. Um, that's an interesting lineup. Yeah, I thought so that's too. a strange lineup. I'm just, I guess, surprised and perhaps pleased. We'll we'll get to this in next week's episode. But comedy movies don't typically get this well celebrated or lauded. And I think part of maybe why it was was the irreverence of the '60s, but also that it's a comedy kind of dressed up as a prestige picture, and then kind of taking the piss out of that. But when was the last time, rhetorical question, a movie this kind of silly, zany won Best Picture? Um, I, I don't know when you might say. Um, and so I, I kind of appreciate that, especially just giving five acting nominations to what are comedic performances, with which also seldom get uh, appreciated, yeah. even if I wasn't really super impressed by a lot of them. Um, Another thing you have in the outline is... Uh, the cultural legacy yep, that's of the movie. Where Can I was going next? I want to read another excerpt from a, a letterbox review that I've already read from the one and a half star review um, that didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. But um, this is quoting now: "The most obvious offspring of Tom Jones is Kubrick's more composed period satire of a gadabout playboy Barry Lyndon. But beyond this, the fourth wall breaking self parody of the piece can be traced forward to stylistic choices from the Coen Brothers, Shane Black, and many others." And uh, I mean, we already mentioned Austin Powers. I was also thinking of Mel Brooks. Hmm. Like, yeah. I think Mel Brooks probably, uh, I would assume, liked this because you see a lot of the stuff here in his later work. Um, so, uh, two things. Number one, uh, Barry Lyndon was our first episode yeah. of this podcast, mm-hmm. and I think none of us liked it very much at the time. Uh, I was going off a of first watch. I think I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but I just want to make sure I, I go on the record and say I've watched Barry Lyndon once or twice since then, and I actually like it a whole lot more than that initial viewing. So I apologize for being so harsh on Barry Lyndon in our very first episode of this podcast, and I would like to say that I don't quite stand by the criticisms I had of it before. And I like Barry Lyndon a lot more than this, and I like this movie decently, you know? So uh, I just want to go on the record and say I'm no longer a Barry Lyndon hater. I'm a, you know, 
I'm coming around quickly. Uh, number two, um, again, like people seem to recognize the um, that stuff that people may like better took from this, and like somehow holds as a criticism against Tom Jones, and like I- I'm guilty of doing that too sometimes. But that I don't know. Didn't maybe I'm just trying to defend this movie because seemed, people seem to hate it online. But I don't know. That seemed weird to me that they would like uh, come out so strongly against it just because they saw it done better afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ken, do you have a comment on the cultural legacy of the movie? Uh, I'm I'm more struck by its place in time and history as far as uh, what cinema is doing in the 1960s. The fact that we've got French New Wave that's very soon going to be inspiring American filmmakers. It's clearly inspiring British filmmakers um, at this point. We see through Tony Richardson's films. Like you already mentioned, The Entertainer, which is a rather famous film adapted from a play um, starring Laurence Olivier um, that is certainly not what probably anyone would have expected from either Olivier or cinema at the time. This film kind of occupies a weird place in the 1960s that makes sense to me if you think about kind of the zanier uh, comedy epics that are being filmed throughout this decade. Mm -hmm. This film kind of fits right in with The Hallelujah Trail, which ironically is kind of mocking um, How the West Was Won, or It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, uh, or even Casino Royale, the, the 67 or 68 version directed by John Huston that's parodying um, James Bond. We get an awful lot of this kind of highly stylized long form comedies during this decade. And this one is actually doing a pretty good job of satirizing rather than straight up parodying what it's, what it's mocking. And that's an important distinction. I'm glad you made that. Yeah. And in, and in that sense, it's a much better film for it because it's not, it's not easy to just chuck it away as being just some other silly comedy. It's trying to do something interesting, something different. And in doing so, I think well establishes itself going forward for any kind of satire. I mean, we talked about network earlier. Network is a lot darker than this. It's not played for laughs quite like this is, but, but network is very, very much a, a funny satire in the sense that the mocking is all there, and if you're watching it, there are times when you're laughing, even when you feel a weird about it. big, fat, big, tittied hit! <laughs> Robert Duvall, God love him. Just something Robert Duvall yeah. says in Network. <laughs> um, I, see, I definitely see a through line from Tom Jones to films like that, where satire is allowed to kind of flex its, its muscles and be both humorous while also being thought-provoking and, and just simply smart. And Tom Jones is doing that, I think, here. Even, again, you may not love it, uh, but there's an awful lot to appreciate here. And you can kind of see where filmmakers going forward are looking back on this film and seeing something that maybe critics at the time weren't seeing and audiences today aren't seeing when they look back at the film. It is a little surprising to me that this film did so well, even in 63. I mean, it did like 30, almost $40 million, right, at the time in box office. Uh, and it, it that boggles I the couldn't mind. Couldn't find any data on it. This this film is wait. Actually, could find data on it. Uh, this had this made uh seventeen million dollars domestically, which is pretty That's good. That's in the U.S. I think internationally it did something like thirty something million dollars, which is like three hundred plus million. Uh, it did really well in England. Yeah. yeah, it was it was one of the higher uh 
grossing movies in England for a while. It's that that is a little surprising to me. This film doesn't strike me as being a film that would play as well. We're talking about we already talked about Cleopatra, How the West Was Won. Um, those movies did really well at the box office, and it makes sense given the star power. This movie doesn't really have that. It's a bunch of it's a bunch of younger, newer actors and a bunch of old theater actors, really, with Edith Evans and Hugh Griffiths and such. And it's just strange that this movie did so well. I, the only assumption I, I have is that at the time, films obviously played much longer in theaters. Word of mouth had to have helped this movie. Mm. Everyone loves Tom Jones. Um, <laughs> my kind of final statement on it is that I, I think part of why it was such a big hit at the time is also part of what keeps me a bit of an arm at an arm's length with it, which is I think it was very, very of its moment. And when movies are very, very of their moment, almost too of their moment, I don't think they travel very well as years go by. And it's hard to watch this movie without just going, ah, the 60s, you know? So if you can kind of appreciate it as, ah, the 60s, then I I think it works. But it's not, I hate this this phrase, but I'm going to use it. It's not timeless in the sense that like double indemnity, I think, is. Um, right. Just to use a film that we had talked about previously, or Jaws, for example. So, um, closing thoughts from you two? Yeah, it's interesting that Ken brought up how this is kind of like the British response to French New Wave ahead of the American response to French New Wave. Uh, a movie we mentioned earlier in this episode is Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde was made, it was written explicitly as a response to Jules and Jim. Like the writers walked out of Jules and Jim and were like, we need to go write something like that. So they wrote Bonnie and Clyde. Um, which came after this by four years, and I think is a much, 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 much better movie. Sure. But um, and then there's also like something like again, we we kind of didn't talk about it enough in my opinion. But Barry Lyndon is so much like this in tone and aesthetic, and is also in my opinion a much, much better movie. So like, it I think Tom Jones kind of gets uh, it's kind of gets shafted because it was overshadowed by things after it that like did the same stuff better. And, like, I know I criticize the letterbox reviews for kind of, like, <laughs> docking the movie points for that exact observation. But I still think this is pretty good. And maybe it's just because I had such low expectations going in. But uh, I like this a good amount. I thought it was charming and funny. Even if it's not, like, you know, an all-timer. The humor worked for you mostly? For the most part. I mean, I wasn't, like, busting a gut or anything mm-hmm. like that. But, like, again, based on what I was expecting versus what I got, like, yeah, I, yeah, it worked. Yeah, Ken? Uh, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed this film, I think setting aside its its reputation or its stature as being a best picture winner the humor was was fine i quite liked the fact that this film is doing something i hadn't expected of it particularly the same year that the pink panther comes out and there are a lot of scenes in this film that reminded me of that film in particular the kind of again the the sillier aspects of the the comedy and the the actions of the players and within the film um, I appreciate the fact that Tony Richardson is experimenting the way he is in this film. I don't necessarily, as I alluded to earlier, like ultimately like the final product of everything. I I don't particularly love the the handheld shaky chaos, in part uh, in that that hunt sequence because it lasts too long, and that might be my largest criticism of the film. I think it runs a little too long, given the fact that his yeah. journey is yeah. so short. Like there's. Almost the first half of the film, we're at the estate before he even sets out on the jury journey to London. So much happens during that journey, and everybody's chasing him and chasing Sophie until we get to the climax of the film. And it just feels a bit rushed. 
and it, it wraps up quick. Yeah, yeah. it just I, I know that seems a little contradictory because I'm saying it, it drags too long and yet rushes at the end. I think player. if I think yeah, I think if they had paced the first half much better, the second half wouldn't feel so wonky to me. Um, but all in all, I'm glad we watched it. I appreciated quite a bit of it. I think this is a good closing remark, TJ. And this is from a letterbox review. This is from a three and a half star review that is is pretty long that kind of like lists things of why they think they like the movie. And then this is the last little blurb of the review. Uh, my recommendation, forget that this somehow won Best Picture and is a part of the Criterion Collection. Instead, come in looking to have fun with a live action period piece cartoon. <laughs> that might just put you in the right mindset to enjoy Tom Jones. Hmm. I think that's right. I think that's correct. I think it's yeah. actually an appropriate Criterion Collection movie because it is a period oddity and they pick a lot of those but it's maybe not what people think of when they name the criteria we've question. talked about this you and know? they're wrong we have talked about it <laughs> yes i agree i agree with you and not with these these fools yes. that disagree yeah. i told hm tilford we could shove that uh, <laughs> all right well that ends our discussion of tom jones and thank you for joining us have a splendid week come back next week for the 1963 recap, where we'll find out if we loved Tom Jones as much as Ampest did. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. With our usual good breeding, we will not follow this particular conversation further.